Uh, just to remind those of you who were here Friday and those who were not here Friday, uh, the ministry is, is sponsoring a trip to Israel September 6th through the 17th. Uh, we'll be going to the Holy Land. We'll be hitting most of the sites that you know of. Please plan to come. It's going to be a wonderful time. Uh, one price takes care of your airfare, your transportation to all the sites, all your meals, and your hotel. So please um, pray about it. September 6th through the 17th, I think it's going to be the, the event of a lifetime. I think it's, everybody should uh, have a chance to go and see um, the places that are talked about in the Bible. It's called In the Footsteps of Jesus. So we have several different speakers who will be taking on responsibility of speaking at different sites um, that are known to us. Uh, so uh, please, you got any questions, ask me. Uh, I left uh, some flyers with Vigi, uh, with Vigi and he, did he bring them? Bring them with you? The flyers? Okay, all right, okay. So you can't leave to church without leaving a deposit today. All right, so you're in trouble. Turn in your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John. John chapter 9, John chapter 9. John chapter 9. Um, <clears throat> one of the remarkable things about the gospel uh, of John is you never see any attempt by the world to exhibit the life of Christ from the vantage point of the gospel of John. They'll easily use Matthew if they want to show him as the Jewish Christ or uh, some smatterings in Mark or even Luke, but never John, because the world really does not understand that the Gospel of John is presenting the Christ that the church embraces, the Christ that is relational, not a historical figure, not a religious icon, but the intimate God who crossed eternity into time to love. And so uh, it is the Gospel written to the church. The Gospel is written to those who know him and love him. And that's why you see so many personalized, intimate encounters recorded in John that you don't find in any of the other Gospels. You'll never hear about the, the role of, of Jesus' life in Jesus in the life of Nicodemus. You won't see the woman at the well. You won't see the man at the pool of Bethesda. You won't hear about the marriage supper. All the intimate encounters that Jesus had, and I believe he had tons of them, they're mentioned only in John because the aspect of the person the, the, the person of Christ is imaged in the Gospel of John. And this is a wonderful story that we're about to read. We're going to start at verse number 1, and we're going to get down to verse number um, 11. And uh, there we'll make our prayer, and I'll give you an outline. It says this, And Jesus passed by, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was born blind from his birth. And the disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man uh, sin nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him who sent me uh, while it is day and the night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said unto him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is interpreted sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and they that before had seen him that he was blind, said, is, not that, is this not he that sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, how are thine eyes open? And he answered and said, here's our statement, a man that is called Jesus. Made clay, anointed my eyes, and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed, and I received sight. Uh, we're going to look at the heritage of Jesus, the help of Jesus, and the hope of Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for what is uh, obvious to those of us on this side of Calvary, that you're the loving God who cares so much that you'd send your only son. Open our eyes, Father, to see deeper things, deeper truths, <laughs> that the Holy Spirit wants to reveal to us is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, the uh, tradition of the day, and this is all deeply seated in 
um, 3,000 years of history at this point. The tradition of the day was that a loving God would never um, impact the life of a child, a baby, an infant, with something as, as debilitating as blindness or being unable to walk or deafness. So there had to be a root cause, and the root cause, because Satan is not the author of life, it couldn't come from him. It had to come from God as some form of judgment, either on the child, because the child had sinned in the womb. I don't even know how people could come up with that clue. Uh, or the parents. Uh, the parents had done something either before the child was conceived, during the, the, um, the uh, time when the child was in the womb, or uh, they had a lifestyle that God cursed them as a result of it. So that was the thinking of the day. The passage that we're looking at today is, is an obstacle in the way so that God can show grace. Now, notice as the scripture said, the reason why I say that, it says, and as Jesus passed by, he saw. What this means, this means that Jesus is going about the course of his life, doing the things that he normally does, going to the synagogue or teaching or visiting another village. And as he went on his way, and this is imperative, it is, it is not like God set up little things where he'd show off or set up little things so, or little encounters so that he could uh, prove himself God. Jesus is the everyday man. He came with that, that, that mantra on him. He did not come in robes guilted. He did not sit on a throne. He did not have fanfare. He did not have a parade. He was an everyday man. And as he encountered people at different stations of life, people who that the law had failed and the Pharisees had failed. And in that aspect, in those encounters, he met the needs of people. That's, that's the whole idea. And don't ever lose sight of what ministry is. Ministry is to meet the needs of the people regardless of the need and regardless of the people. And that's what Jesus did. He went on his way ministering. So he's on his way. He's just going through life and he encounters people. And what does that mean to us? That means to us, basically, as you go through your life, you're supposed to minister to people. You're supposed to have a, a, a word fitly spoken. You're supposed to have a gentle touch. You're supposed to have an answer for the reason of the hope that lies within you. As you go on your way, you're not supposed to be vanilla to the world around you and just ignore the situation. Every single opportunity that comes up in the life of the encounter of someone else, you should minister. I was on a plane uh, last week. I was coming back from Atlanta, and um, I was, I was, they had shoved me. Um, between um, someone that was overweight on this side and someone was grossly overweight on this side. And, um, and so I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm trying to go to sleep so I don't have to uh, deal with the uncomfortability of, of being a pretzel at the time. And I'm going to be on a plane for two hours and so I'm just trying to go to sleep so I don't have to deal with the uncomfortable situation. But the man next to me wanted to talk. Okay? That's how I know there's a Satan in the world. Um, and he wanted to talk. And uh, he said, um, are you, is Atlanta your home or are you going home? I said, well, I live in Detroit. I said, I'm, I was just down here for two days. I'm going to Detroit. He said, oh, why were you down here? So I, I said, well, um, I had discipled a young man. I ordained him. I installed him as church. I helped him charter his church. Our, our ministry chartered his church. He said, oh, are you a minister? I said, well, yeah. I said, I love the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, on that premise, across the aisle, a woman who was also in a similar situation, pressed between two, not two thieves, but two people, uh, said, praise the Lord. I, I love the Lord, too. And I guess the person next to her was her husband, says, Praise the Lord. I said, well, praise the Lord. And this guy who is between the aisle and us saying, praise the Lord. Well, there was my opportunity. All of a sudden, I'm rejuvenated. I want to stay awake. And I, I was talking to them, but we were talking at him. And there was our opportunity. And, I, and, and the whole point of the conversation was I was trying to get to the point where I could reach in my pocket, pull out my phone. On the back of my phone is a stack of my business cards so I can hand it to him. So at the end of the flight, I could say to him, if you have any questions, any needs, anything that have to do with, the God, with God, the Bible, or Jesus Christ, please call me. 
I was waiting for that moment. And so as the flight went on, we're talking everything, and he would interject a question that didn't sound right to him. And sometimes he tried to change the subject. Well, what do you think of Trump winning the election? I said, it doesn't matter in the universal scheme of things. In eternity, it doesn't matter at all. And, and, and that blew him out. So we began to talk about that whole thing, about the issue of eternity. So we, with the plane lands, and I turned to him, and I handed him my car. I said, sir, if you ever have any questions about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the Bible, or God, would you call me? He said, can I really? I said, yes, you really can. So we get off the plane. He stops me in the gate area, and he says, I can really call you? I said, I'll tell you what, this phone number is only my office phone. Here's my cell phone. I never give out my cell phone number. I gave him my cell phone number. He says, I can email you too? I said, yes. I said, you can send a carrier pigeon. I said, if you want to talk to me, you do. And, and the other couple gave him their information. Now, what's interesting, too, is the man that was on the other side of the woman, the man that was sitting next to the, the, the window, began to ask them questions, too. There's always an opportunity to share your faith. Not everybody's going to get saved right at that moment. Not even, maybe not at all. But ministry is meeting the needs of the people, regardless of the need, regardless of the people. And no matter where you come from, no matter what your station is in life, no matter how intelligent you are, no matter what your background is, everybody has been beat up by Satan. Everybody has sinned that they still feel the weight of. Everybody has had despair. I don't care if you're one of the big Wall Street guys or the fellow that works in a little factory. There, every single one of us has a need for a savior. And so in this encounter in life, here's a man who's an adult and he's been blind from birth. And the disciples not even interested in having him be healed, knowing Jesus could heal him, just wanted to find out who sinned. Because if he sinned, if he sinned, he deserves what he got. So who did sin, the parents or the child? And Jesus said, neither. Neither? No. This man is blind for one reason, so that the entire world, the entire world from this point forward will know about this man. It's written in the Holy Script. The Holy Spirit deemed it worthy of all the encounters that Jesus had. And John talks about that, that volumes should be written about it. But of all the things that Jesus encountered, this thing universally met the needs of more people for the, the time of the church age to tell the story of this blind man than anybody else. So it's devoted a whole chapter about his story about how a savior encountered him, the reason why he was born blind. And you need to absorb the impact of why this is written. A whole chapter is written about this encounter. And Jesus said, this is done so that the works of God may be manifest in him, not on him, but in him. It's not, I'm not just going to deal with his blindness. I'm going to deal with the whole aspect of his brokenness, his hurt, his despair. So he'll never have to have it again. You know, I understand the need of, 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 of churches to be philanthropic and, and to feed people who are hungry and clothe people who are destitute. But most importantly is to give them something beyond today. And that's the hope of eternity. And so as we read this story and the encounter of what happened when they encountered him, they says what, notice what it says in verse number eight. The neighbors, therefore, and they that which were before had seen him, that he was blind, said, is not this the he that sat and begged some said it is he other says he is like him but he said it's me let me affirm that it's me verse number 10 therefore said they unto him how were thine eyes open and he answered and said what all of us he's given the testimony of entire new testament age a man that is called jesus a man that isn't called Jesus. And whether you go to heaven or hell, you're still going to have to deal with that line. Why are you in hell? Why is it that you are not in heaven? Because a man that is called Jesus offered me salvation and I didn't take it. Everybody's at the fulcrum of that point. That is the opinion upon which all eternity will sit and rest. Whether you're an intellectual, whether you're an atheist, whether you're a Christian, whether you're devout, whether you're religious, doesn't matter. The same point is right there. A man that is called Jesus is going to determine the fate of your eternity by what you decide to do with him. Bottom line, I'm sorry. No more choices. There's not a door B or a door C. It's all right here. A man that is called Jesus. Period. 
Because the encounter of judgment, whether it's the judgment seat of Christ or the white throne judgment, is based on that fact. You were presented the man that is called Jesus. What did you do with him? If you took him as Savior, you'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. If you didn't take him as Savior, you'll stand before the great white throne judgment. And God will condemn you right there about this issue of a man called Jesus. So first of all, let's look at that very first part of that phrase. A man. A man. Jesus presents himself for us in the Gospels. Uh, as the aspect of four realities, four truths. First of all, turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Matthew, chapter 1, and look at verse number 1. Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew, remember, was killed, he was martyred, because he dared write the story of Jesus in the language of the people. And the language of the people of that day was what? Aramaic. Okay? It had traces of Chaldean, it had traces of Syrian, but it had mostly Jewish roots. It was the language of the people. It was the abonics of it. Okay? And he what it says. This is the record, book of the record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay. Who was born first, Abraham or David? Abraham. So why is David's name mentioned first? Because of the first revelation that we need to examine is the son of David. This talks about Jesus in his royalty. Jesus in his royalty. And get that, let's turn to it. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we're going to start at verse number 11. You remember it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David's talking to Nathan and said, Hey, here I am, I dwell in a palace made of cedar, but the Lord is between some sheets. He's in a tent. I want to build the house for the Lord. And Nathan said, go ahead, do everything you wanted. Then God came to Nathan and said, don't tell David that. I don't want him to build me a house. I'm, he's a man of war, a man of blood. I don't want that. I want my house to be a house of peace. So we pick up the story in verse number 11 of 2 Samuel 7. It says this. And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will build thee in house. And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build in house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a perfect uh, example of what is known as a dual fulfillment of prophecy. You have both the, a, a, a real-time, actual prophecy that the people of the day will hear and benefit from and affirm to be true, but also there's a future portent to this prophecy that has nothing to do with the people that but has, uh, is an indicator of the future grace of God and how it would be imaged in the world to come. Notice how the, it's verb there. And when thy days shall be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with my fathers. I will set up thy seed. Notice, seed, singular, not plural, after thee. That is the first indication of what will be fulfilled later on in the book of Galatians. Uh, we don't have time to look at it, but look at Galatians chapter 3. It'll, it'll be clear for you. Which proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. So already we know that in the dual fulfillment of this prophecy, it's talking about two people. One person will be a temporal kingdom and have certain human aspects to it. We know that to be who? Solomon. Okay? And then there is one that has an eternal. Look at what it says in verse number 14. I will be his father. I'm sorry, verse number 13. Uh, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So who is he talking about there? It's got to be Jesus, because Solomon is only going to live 70 years. Solomon's going to live for 70 years. He's going to die. So it can't be talking about Solomon. So we have here in these two verses the present dual fulfillment of prophecy. The prophecy is talking about Solomon in a temporal sense that the people of Israel will appreciate, but then it has future portent that would deal with the person, the coming Messiah. Verse 13, <clears throat> I will be his father and he shall be my son. He, if he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. So who is he talking about there in verse 14? Solomon. Jesus isn't going to commit any sin. So it cannot be talking about him. It is talking about the son uh, his son Solomon. Definitely Solomon is going to sin a whole lot. Okay, for those of you who haven't seen the preview. 
Um, verse number 15. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took away from Saul, whom I put away before thee. Again, talking about Solomon. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Obviously, it's talking here again about the Lord Jesus Christ. So this, this aspect of Jesus being mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, as the son of David, shows that Jesus will sit on the, rod, on the throne of his father, David, and his father, God. How, what proof do you have of that, Dwight? Flip your Bible to the back, to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. Exactly. Okay. Revelation chapter 22. And look what it says in um, verse number uh, 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root of and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. So what is he saying? He said, I am before David existed, and I am coming out of this person called David. I, I preceded David, and I come from David. So he's fulfilling the role of being David's savior and great David's descending son. That's all found right there. So we see that Jesus has to fulfill the role of his Father David, when people were in, in, in trouble and needed mercy, they would say, oh, thou son of David, now son, not son of God, but thou son of David, have mercy on me. And that was the point that there was a perpetual human uh, context by which the Messiah would come. Now, when you read the scriptures and you follow the scriptures closely, I don't have time to do it. You will see that, that he, he rules the universe as the son of God, but he rules humanity as the son of David. So first, when we see that term, uh, uh, a man that is called Jesus, he's fulfilling in his heritage role, the son of David. But the next thing it says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, is that he's not only the son of David, he's the son of Abraham. Now that shows his humanity, his humanity. David shows his royalty, but the relationship with Abraham shows his humanity. Why? Turn to Genesis chapter 15. And y'all, this is just point one. So, and I'm not even halfway through it. Okay. So, take it off your coat, get comfortable, adjust your girdle, and uh, just hold on. Okay. Verse number one. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying... Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. I am your protection and I'm your provider. And Abraham said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of mine house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, singular. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth and said, look toward heaven, tell the stars that thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. Now here is very clear, making inference to something that is beyond the human context, because he's going to say in chapter 17, look at the sand of the sea. So shall thy seed be. There's a dual fulfillment of prophecy. Your family is going to take on two descriptions. One, as the sand of the sea, is going to be an earthly family. And that earthly family is represented in what? Israel. Okay? Yes, you're going to have a bunch of kids. And you're going to see them in your lifetime. But also, he says in this passage, he said, look at the stars. If you can tell them, so shall thy seed be. You're going to have an earthly family and you're going to have a spiritual family. That's exactly what's going to happen. But the context is, Abraham, both families and the progenitors of both families will be human. Will be human. You see, it's just as much heresy to say that Jesus was not human as it is heresy to say that Jesus was not God. For your own reading, whenever you get a chance to, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 this is a faithful saying that there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, 
Christ Jesus. And that man, that blind man that was healed, got it right. A man that is called Jesus, he told me to do this. He anointed my eyes and he told me to go to the pool. That's very important. The man, while Jesus was absolutely God all the time, never once did he cease in his deity. No time on earth did he use his deity to fulfill his role as Messiah. That is very important. Yes, God himself. That's why it's so important that you understand Philippians chapter two, verses five through eleven. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought of not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon the, the, the form of man, was made, uh, uh, was made in the likeness of man, and took upon the form of a servant. Being found in fashion as a man, he did something. He humbled himself. The word empty is the Greek word kenosis, the great emptying. He emptied himself. He purposely, of his own decided to lay aside the aspect of his deity and only act as a man and acting only as a man as great David's greater son as the last Adam he fulfilled everything was required to meet the needs of the people in ministry the man Christ Jesus and that's because of that relationship with Abraham and if you want to know more about that you have to read Romans chapter 4 so David royalty Abraham, humanity. You cannot lose that aspect. A man had to die on the cross. A man had to shed his blood. A perfect man, not just an innocent, but a perfect man, whose blood perpetuated. So when he said a man called Jesus, he was absolutely telling the truth and with theology. But he says a man that is called is called. We saw him as the son of David in his royalty, the son of Abraham in his humanity, but a man that is called Jesus. Now we have to see him in his deity. His deity. Remember that Jesus, while he was on earth, was always being questioned. Are you the son of God? 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 See, Israel never saw the Messiah as the son of God. They saw a Messiah coming who had all the power that was endued on him from God, but they never saw him as the son of God. That's so, so important. So when they came to Jesus and queried him about why or how or what authority, they never assumed that he was going to say he was the son of God. Because if he, they understood that he was the son of God, they wouldn't question his authority. Matter of fact, whenever he said that he was the son of God, they got mad at him. For what sin do you commit? It's not for sin or, or blasphemy, I mean, sin or, or the good work you did. You blaspheme. You said you were son of God, making yourself equal with God. And why, that's why I don't understand why the Job Witnesses don't get that. It's very clear. But it's imperative that we see that Jesus in his deity had to be the son of God. Look at Hebrews chapter one. Hebrews chapter one. This verse is so telling that the Jehovah Witnesses just take it out of their Bible. They said, we don't even want to wrestle with it. We'll just throw it out. How convenient. Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 6 and read down to verse number 8. Hebrews 6, I'm sorry, 1, verses 6 through 8. And look what it says. And again, when he bringeth the first begotten into the world, he said, let all the angels of God worship him. Already he deserves divine honors because the only person who should be worshipped is God. So when, when, when the Godhead brings Jesus into the world, so for man to make... To be able to touch him, what we call being particularized, locatable in time and space, having uh, a geo, ge a geographic uh, coordinates where we can load him, uh, locate him, address him where he is. When he brings him to the world, he said, let all the angels of God worship him. The first time angels saw Jesus was when he came from his mother's womb and was laid in that manger in Bethlehem. Before then, as you read in, in Isaiah chapter 6, angels were afraid to look on God. 
Matter of fact, that's one of the aspects of the description. Another description of his, of his deity is first chapter 3, verse 16. Without controversially, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Also, the Jehovah's Witnesses throw that verse out. Uh, God was manifest to the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels. So the first time angels saw God was when Jesus appeared on earth in the, in the bodily form of, of a babe. So going on, verse 7 says this, and the angel, of the angels, he said, who makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, get this, unto the son, that's monogenes weos, the only begotten son, Unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Here is his deity, the incredible aspect of his deity as the Son of God. You cannot deny that. That's what, what, what John is trying to propel in his gospel in John chapter 20, verse 31. His, his, his thesis statement of his book, the, the key verse of the book of John, John 20, 31. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. That's the whole point. The reason why he has authority to do this, the reason why God has, has acknowledged him and, and, and given him the, 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 the wonderful phrase, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, is because he has every right to be called God because he is. So this man who's being healed by Jesus does not get healed because because Jesus is is the son of David. He's not healed because he's the son of Abraham. He's healed because he's the son of God. And Jesus made that very clear. You go through the, the gospel of Mark. It's a great study. And look at all the aspects of the of the gospel of Mark. There are nine things that Jesus proves he's Lord over. He's Lord over the Sabbath. He's Lord over sickness. He's Lord over the spirits. He's Lord over the storm. He's Lord over the sea. He's Lord over the skies. He's Lord over, over and over again. Just do a great. It's a great study through the, the gospel of Mark. He says he's Lord over the Sabbath. He's Lord over the scriptures. He is God. He's God. Now, I know people have a problem with that because, in essence, I have no problem with him being a nice guy and a nice person and doing nice things. But when you say that he is deity, we have a problem. No, we don't have a problem. You have a problem. But he's God, very God, Lord of all. He's the only wise God, immutable, immortal. There's nothing about him that you can change. He rules the universe. So. First, we see him as the son of David, then the son of Abraham in his humanity, then the son of God in his deity. But lastly, how Jesus saw himself. Jesus didn't call himself the son of David, although he was rightly called the son of David. He did not call himself the son of Abraham, although rightly he was the son of Abraham. He did not call himself very often the son of God, although he was the son of God. How did he refer to himself? Son of man. And that talks about his majesty. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And I know some of you say, well, Dwight, you've talked about this before. Well, actually, this is not the point of the message. This is all the introduction. So um, Daniel chapter 7, look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, behold, one like unto the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given unto him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom shall be, which shall not be destroyed. There it is, the Son of Man. That was a, 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 a a description, a title given him to prove that he has the right to rule not over just heaven, but all the affairs of man with all a majesty, all the royalty that comes with it. This aspect of this person, Jesus, all of a sudden is 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 rushing to one point, And that's John chapter nine, verse 11, a man that is called Jesus, because the latter part of Philippians chapter two, in that passage, we talked about verse number eight, wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and things in heaven, things in earth and things under earth, and every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't you ever 
backpedal on the name of Jesus. There's something about that name. No other name causes chaos in the spiritual world. No other name causes Satan and his minions to tremble. No other name can be saved. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus, period. Period. That's his majesty. You read Revelation chapter 19, and it talks about him coming uh, robed as he were in his majesty. The Bible says, and he left heaven on And remember this, that whenever a king went forth to battle, he would leave his kingdom riding a black horse, which means fighting, means war, it means destruction. And he won the war, he come back on a white horse. Well, Jesus doesn't go to the war on a black horse, he goes on on a white horse, meaning I've already won. So we cheer him, we, we lift him up, we extol him, we worship him. While we may be in the midst of trouble, we know we've already got the victory. We've already got the victory. He's already won. So you don't praise God after your problem is solved. You praise him before it's manifest to you because he's already won. And this man, this blind man who, who for years until adulthood was in a world of darkness is given light by the Savior. And all of a sudden he knows more than the Pharisees do. And you said, Dwight, how is that possible? Well, here's our next point. We cover the aspect of Jesus and his heritage. Now let's look at Jesus and his help. Go back to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. And look what it says. It says, um, uh, verse number 11, he answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay, anointed mine eyes, and said unto me, Go to the pool Siloam and wash and I went and washed and I received my sight. Now you say Dwight what do you mean that Jesus is this man's help? There's so much dynamic in the misconception of the people of Israel. It amazes me how somebody could have the absolute complete work of the history of God no other culture, no other religion, no other nation had what Israel had. And Israel was as dumb as a post. Israel had all the teaching, all the prophecy, all the promises, the prayers, and, 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 and praise of the scriptures. And they still didn't know what's going on. Matter of fact, a bunch of guys had to come from the east to tell them that Messiah was coming. And when Herod said, is this true? They said, well, give us a minute. And they had to go check the record. Yeah, they're not even reading their Bible. They're not even reading the Bible. When I was growing up, and, and some of you who grew up brethren might have been true. I'm probably Gio and all you guys who grew up brethren. Probably, when I was growing up, I was proud to be brethren. You know why? Because I used to say, if you can't go to a brethren church. As a matter of fact, they'd say, forget the, the seminary, go to a brethren church. Because the word of God was so thick and so constant and so routine that you, in our churches, you'd start a verse and the, a congregation would finish it. Sometimes you had to tell them to say, stop. I'm not going that far in the passage. Stop right there. There was a sister, Sister Martin, who was in our church. She memorized the entire book of John. The entire book of John. And she started when she was 79. That's how, that's how I grew up. I grew up not reading and memorizing, just hearing it over and over and over and over again. But now we don't do that. We wonder why our kids are losing the battle of intellectualism because they don't know the scripture. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us the origin of the world, how God created the universe. He framed the world by the, by the word of God. And the people say, that sounds stupid. It may sound stupid, but it's the truth. God stepped out on the edge of nothing and said, let there be light, and light was. And nobody can tell you different. Because anything that man tries to tell you about the origin, you stop him and say, were you there? No, well, I know who was. And he said, let there be light, and light is continuing to go. Now, I'll be honest with you. It doesn't make real good textbook reading. But when you need faith in the midnight hour, when your world is falling apart, when your child is screaming out of pain, 
You don't run to that scientist, that, that biology teacher, and say, help me out. You say, Lord, have mercy. And that God is the God that answers your prayer. That God. Jesus had every right. This man had every right to see Jesus as his help. Why? Why? Because he had been told for years he was not worthy. He had been told for years that God hated him. Well, Dwight, where do you get that from? Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. And this is under the rule of David. And remember what the temple, where the temple uh, sits is the old uh, great Jebusite fortress. And David knew where he wanted to put the temple, even though he was not going to be allowed to build it. It says in verse number six of Second Samuel chapter five, it says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spoke, spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in thither, thinking David cannot come in thither. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, and the same as the city of David. And David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusite, and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. There it is. It was forbidden in Israel for the blind and the lame to come into the temple or come to the tabernacle or come to the tent or come to the testimony. They were cursed supposedly of God. No, they weren't cursed of God. They were cursed of David. But everyone in the society treated them as though they were cursed of God. So here's this blind man. Here's lame man in chapter chapter. Um, uh, five, the impotent man, all of these people were put aside because the world thought that they were cursed of God and they could never have their sins dealt with. So in every aspect, this man is surprised to find out that Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God, the son of man, took time to anoint his eyes and say, go see. The very thing that he had been denied all his life, he wallowed in the despair of absolute hopelessness. He was absolutely helpless. And here comes the person, the last person on earth that he thought would help him comes Jesus. And Jesus just comes up with this crazy idea. Why didn't he just say, have your sight? Because I love God's genius. It's very imaginative and you can never, ever predict it. Jesus spit in dirt and even the spit of God is holy. And he was not so much healed by the clay or the spittle. He was healed because he acted on faith. Jesus said, go. And when you answer God's call to go, you can expect a miraculous to happen. Jesus helped him, not just in his physical infirmity, but his spiritual problem. And that's our last point. He is not only this man's help, he's his hope. Go back to John chapter 9. And this is the most important encounter that happened, not his eyesight being restored. And by the way, um, theologians believe that his situation was not where he could not see. They say that used, the word blind there is exclusively used. I don't, I'm not absolutely positive I can um, uh, verify this. But the word blind there is used for a person who has no eyes. He has no eyes. It's not just that he can't see. He has no eyes. And look at what it says in verse number um, 35. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out. He went to him and found him and said unto him, Dost thou believe in the Son of God? And he said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. The reason why Jesus opened his eyes so that he could see his Savior. It's not just he could see trees and buildings and people. He said, Thou hast both seen him. And he's talking to you. And he says this. He said, Lord, I believe. And the last phrase is the most important. And he worshiped him. He worshiped him. You remember the story in Luke about the ten lepers? And leprosy was a, a nasty, debilitating, shameful disease. Nobody, you had to step off a stone's throw away. And when people would come by, you had to cover your upper lip and say, unclean. 
unclean. And the word there, unclean, in the Hebrew gives the idea of perpetually unclean. I can never get clean. I can never go out the outside the city and sit in sackcloth and ashes and fast and pray and get clean. No, I'm clean forever, unclean forever. And the Bible says that as Jesus is going by, this said, son of David, have mercy on us. And he said, what do you want? He said, well, Lord, we just want to be clean. And Jesus said to them, probably to their heart, the most discouraging thing they could ever hear, go to the temple. Well, what would happen when they got to the temple? What would happen? They get stoned. But Jesus said, go, go to the temple. And I'm going to tell you something. What healed them was not just the power of God, but the fact that they acted on that one word, go. It's the obedience of God's word that things happen. It's not that God can do it. Do you believe that he can do it? Of course he can heal you. Of course he can save you. But do you believe it? And the Bible says they got up and as they went, they were clean. They were clean. And imagine all of a sudden in the minds of the the first guy. Wow, I'm clean. I can go back to work. The second guy. Wow, I'm clean. I can go back to my wife. The third guy. Wow, clean. I can be in society again. The fifth guy. Wow, I'm clean. I can go back to school. The sixth guy. Wow, I'm clean. People will like me. Seventh guy. Wow, I'm clean. Maybe I can get married. The the eighth guy, wow, I'm clean. No more people laughing at me. Wow, I'm clean. Nobody's going to throw stones. But the tenth guy, when he looked at himself, the Bible says he fell. He fell down. He fell down on his face. He fell down on his face at Jesus' feet and worshiped. Your Christianity is not proved by how much Bible you know. Your Christianity is not authenticated by why people say what kind of life you live. Your Christianity is authenticated in one dimension. Is he Lord? And do you worship him? Notice the crowning point of that old hymn of the church. And God has given him a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should go to church, every voice should sing praises, no, that every one should bow down and worship him. Worship him. And in that day, Revelation 4, when the four and 20 elders cast their crowns at his feet, the great coronation scene of heaven, the number that is more than any man can number, not 144,000, but more than any man can number, will fall down and say, thou art worthy. Because that's what worship is, worthiness, worthyship. Thou art worthy to receive glory, honor, and power, for thou hast created thy all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And that's exactly the point of John chapter 9. Worship him. Worship him. You are not studying the Bible so you will win every argument. You're not studying the Bible so that you can find all the nuances of the Old Testament and New Testament. You study the Bible so you'll have more and more reason to worship him. My mother was not very ambitious in her dreams for her three boys. She didn't say, Dwight, you're going to be a doctor. Bruce, you're going to be an engineer. Ricky, you're going to be a lawyer. My mother said, I don't care what you do as long as it gives glory to God. You could be a garbage man. So what? If it gives glory to God, you'd be a garbage man. You want to be the president of the United States? Okay, fine. But it better give glory to God. And I would walk past my mother's bedroom every night and hear her pray. Say, Lord, let my sons be a praise and a worship to your name. The hope of all mankind is Jesus. Do you realize that worship is the only attribute of our encounter with God where he promises nothing in return? The Bible says he inhabits the praises of Israel. 
and he inhabits them and he heals them. That's what praise does. And then you talk about um, loving him and the benefit of loving him in John chapter 14, verses 21 and 23. But when it comes to worship, God stops and says, there's no reciprocation. I deserve it. I delight in it. And I demand it. You worship me. You worship me. And a lot of us in that account, very low. Not asking for anything, not expecting anything, just worshiping him. And the word worship, proskuneo, means like a dog licking the hand of his master. I have a beautiful dog at home. And when my dog lays next to me, she doesn't just lay there, she licks my hand. It's her own canine way of saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Peppy, stop licking me, Cassie. Lear snatches away his hand. I don't know what Stephanie does. But I let my dog lick my hand because that's her way of saying thank you. Worship. Worship is your way of just saying thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know why a lot of us are dried up, emaciated, stunted, growth, stagnant Christians? Lack of worship. That's just the truth. Worship. I think it is a sin and affrontery before God for any Christian to be boring or mean-spirited when God has saved you. He didn't destroy you. He saved you. Worship should be the signature indicator of your life. And I promise you, I promise you, that if you become a true worshiper, because that's what Jesus told the woman at the well, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in the spirit and truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him, the true worshipers. That's what God delights in, worship. He delights in it, he demands it, he deserves it. And that's the whole point of this passage. The hope of your life is to worship him. I'm going to tell you something, church. You won't have any problems with being recognized. You won't have any problems with people wanting to know more about you if you become a true worshiper. When your heart is open to always say thank you. When you're more concerned about the giver than the gift. You, you, just, you just try it and watch the dynamics of your life unfold like you've never seen before. Heavenly Father, make your people understand the value of knowing you so that worship is easy. Worship is, is a, a, a constant, not something worked at, but a constant of remembering who you are. Not just what you do and what you've done, but just your God. And we have to say to you the things that are deserving of you. Father, your word reminds us over and over again that we're never supposed to treat you lightly. We're not supposed to become so familiar with you that we lose our sense of reverence. But, oh God, like the blind man in this story, like those, that one-tenth leper, let us fall at your feet and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.